0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated links from the curated links section of damninteresting.com and talk about them and break them down and give you all the highlights you might have missed. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes to us from Hakai Magazine, and it's called Rockabye Sharky. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, researchers may have finally found evidence for sleep in sharks, because we actually have not been sure whether or not sharks actually sleep. So you guys know about that myth that, you know, sharks have to keep swimming or they'll drown, right? They have right. to constantly yeah. be in motion. and But this isn't really actually always the case. I mean, surprise, surprise, a common saying is not entirely truthful. Right. <laughs> wow. uh, sharks that live on the seafloor, like the carpet shark, They can remain stationary and keep breathing by pushing water over their gills with a technique that's called buckle pumping or B U C C A L, maybe butchal, but I like Mm. buckle pumping. I think (laughs) that's kind of fun. And so they can stay immobile for long periods of time. But a groundbreaking Mm. study by Michael L. Kelly, who's a sleep physiologist at La Trobe University in Australia, has shown the first evidence for sleep in sharks. This really consists of two behaviors. One is a lack of movement that can be rapidly reversed, and two, a decreased awareness of surroundings. And typically hmm. these behaviors are regulated by the circadian rhythm, which is the light dark system, right? As well as a homeostatic need to balance time asleep with time awake. So we kind of have these external factors, is it light or dark? Or do I need to actually have some sleep because I've been awake for too long, etc. And they tested two of these buckle pumping species, the Port Jackson. And there's even a picture of a Port Jackson shark at the top of this article. And it legit has this little piggy nose on it, which is it's one of the most kawaii sharks I have ever seen a picture of in my life. So they studied this guy as well as the draftsboard shark. Both of these have been previously shown to exhibit reversible periods of stillness as well as circadian activity patterns. So they applied a series of mild electrical pulses to the shark's tanks to see how they responded. And they (laughs) did this whether they were actively swimming or after they'd been lying motionless for at least five minutes. The scientists also kept the sharks awake to see if their homeostatic processes would try to make up for lost sleep essentially, to see if the sharks would sleep in. Isn't that, like, against the Geneva Conventions? Yeah. That doesn't seem, like, very kind. possibly, but it's 2020. What Geneva Convention, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what they found is that for both species, they had to apply a stronger electrical pulse to get a response from an inactive shark than from one who was swimming. But what was interesting is that none of the animals slept more after being kept awake. So this is suggesting that sleep in these sharks might be controlled more by these circadian rhythms as opposed to the homeostatic processes. Hmm. So the next step in understanding shark sleep will be to monitor a sleeping shark's metabolism and brainwave activity Though Kelly, the scientist working on this, says these electrical signals are difficult to measure accurately in salt water.
0: Yeah, that was my question because they can put electrodes on a human skull and uh-huh. determine without a doubt whether you are sleeping. Like, you can fake it as well as you want, but your brainwaves change when you're asleep. Exactly. So I was just like, why don't they just stick electrodes on? But I guess the salt water is <laughs> conductive and yeah. so it
2: doesn't work. They're approaching this in stages. Apparently, we just haven't had a lot of interest or impetus to study sleep in sharks. It was probably that baby shark song. Got everybody interested. (laughs) You want that grant? You start that slideshow with Baby Shark. That's right. You got to get the public on board. (laughs) (laughs) Next link.
1: Next Next link. link. Okay. This one is a bit of a long one, but it's very interesting and entertaining. And it comes to us from Narratively.com. And it is titled, Food Fads Have Always Been Ridiculous. Just Ask the Great Masticator.
0: Whoa. Oh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of foreboding in that name, man.
1: (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So mastication uh, Mm -hmm. means chewing, if you're not familiar Mm -hmm. with the term. So we kind of set the stage. On December 27th, 1907, Clara Webster, who is not the great masticator, but sort of (laughs) where we start the scene, uh, was hosting a dinner at her modest home on Highland Avenue in Dixon, Illinois. The 18-year-old was known throughout the town for her elaborate theme parties, but on this particular night, she'd throw one of her oddest events yet, a munching party. Uh, At the time mastication was in vogue and on both sides of the Atlantic what? people Wait. were just <laughs> flocking to munching parties Yeah, where okay, eating mouth on. What was life like
2: <laughs> before mastication was in vogue? I think yeah, I mean, nobody chewed their here. food
1: like... Yeah, I mean, I think you just chewed it as many times as necessary so you could swallow it and that was it, you know, uh, not much attention was paid to the mastication Oh, so this of... was
0: like part of the, like, the Kellogg like health craze thing where they were like ah do these things for wellness they're like chew your food a thousand times or whatever exactly
1: Mm -hmm. yeah this is exactly where this is going all right (laughs) So this was actually a very, very fashionable thing. So you had these fashionable kind of high status society people flocking to munching parties where each <laughs> mouthful <laughs> of food was timed with a stopwatch to ensure proper digestion. Uh, and <laughs> after five not- minutes <laughs> elapsed, the official chewing conductor rang a bell or a gong signaling that it was time to swallow.
2: What? Wait, five minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's okay. intense.
1: And the article has a very nice quip. These mastication marathons were often muted affairs. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> and uh, guests would sit elbow to elbow in concentrated silence. Their heads bowed low over their plates, allowing their tongues to rest against the roof of their mouths, a position believed to best prepare the rest of the body for digestion. A, a lot of people didn't like this so much, actually. No. So y'all's reactions were shared by many. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Frank Crowenshield, who was a society writer at the time, complained that the chewing craze added a new horror to dining out. These strange creatures seldom repay attention. The best that can be expected from them is the tense and awful silence that always accompanies their excruciating tortures of a mastication. So... <laughs> Despite this, from 1903 to 1910, these social chewing events proliferated across the U.S. and Europe, and people were even organizing, like, local chewing clubs. <laughs> so all of this was sparked by Horace Fletcher, who is a prominent American food fattist whose career highlights the perennial public appetite for quick fixes and these really weird biohacks. And mm-hmm. he was more of a—not exactly a charlatan. We'll get into that in detail. But he certainly had no medical history. Uh, Yet, regardless of that, he still was able to catalyze this revolution in nutritional science and theory, which actually has a real impact on us today, besides just being a fad. Mm -hmm. So, Fletcher believed that all illness stemmed from eating too quickly, which would cause undigested food to build up in the gut and tax the system, and so he advised chewing each mouthful until it liquidized and lost all taste, which took, on average, 100 chews per minute. And He warned, to swallow anything but pure water without tasting it into absorption produces a shock.
2: Okay. (laughs) I mean, there is something to be said for thoroughly chewing food because if you do have a bunch of stuff sitting in your gut, it can give you a bellyache, right? I mean, this isn't totally an old wives' tale.
0: Yeah, and your saliva does have enzymes in it, so you are speeding up the digestive process. You're doing more of the work up in your mouth and less of it down in your digestive tract. But I don't know, five minutes of swishing is just Mm -mm. gross.
1: Yeah, so... Horace Fletcher was born on August 10, 1849, and he was a restlessly curious child. A family friend recalled that he did as much as possible to investigate his new surroundings, and at the age of 15, he actually ran away from home aboard a Pacific-bound whaling ship and basically port hopped through the Pacific for about 10 years or so, and finally landing in San Francisco where he made a tiny fortune manufacturing ink and importing Japanese art. He was a voracious reader and writer, he owned thousands of rare books, and he published tomes on mining, marksmanship, and everything in between. He was also an avid art collector, an internationally acclaimed sharpshooter, and a celebrated gymnast. So, like, oh, is that all? This, <laughs> yeah, this was a guy with accolades. Yeah, but he just couldn't stay still. So, in 1889, he and his wife moved to Paris, where he worked as an art correspondent for the New York Herald. And then they relocated to New Orleans, where he managed an opera company. And by <laughs> 1898, he had circled the globe four times, crossed the United States 36 times, and held 38 different occupations. And the years of being a gourmand and globe trotting was taking its toll. By the age of 44, he was overweight and plagued with a constellation of chronic ailments and Mm -hmm. debilitating fatigue clouded his mind and stopped him from traveling at all. And he even described himself as being a thing fit but to be thrown upon the scrap heap, which is quite a bit from going from a gymnast who is able to do backflips and somersaults with ease. So, he falls into a really deep depression, essentially, and because of just how many issues he was having, he was actually denied life insurance around 1895. Wow. And it was a wake-up call for him. It was basically diet or die. Mm -hmm. And so... For years, he tried to figure out a cure kind of for his weight problems, and he bounced from doctor to doctor, consulted hundreds of health books, and swallowed just as many cocktails of powders, cathartics, or stimulants he could find, but nothing really solved it. Mm -hmm. Until one year in June 1898, he had to go to Chicago for business for weeks, and to pass his time, he started lingering over his meals in the hotel dining room, chewing his food slowly and attentively and beginning to pay attention to the new dimensions of flavor that were unveiled from that. Uh, He writes, A potato is a luxury when dealt with on my principle of a long, long shoe. (laughs) The starch contained in the vegetable, being well mixed with the juices of the mouth, becomes a dainty for the gods. (laughs) Oh, this is—I'm so glad
2: that I ate before this because there's no way I'd be able to eat without.
0: (laughs) I gotta admit, I'm tempted. Like I haven't eaten lunch yet. I think I'm—I'm gonna at least for the first couple of bites give it a shot, and then I'll get bored and stop. But like,
1: (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And so this was a guy who used to be not satisfied by anything but like the creme de la creme of everything. He would have, you know, tons of meat washed down with a bottle or two of champagne, but now he was finding himself craving the simpler fare and satiated by smaller portions, so he keeps going. He starts weighing out his food, scrutinizing each bite, tracking how the taste transforms, the texture, and Mm. he actually found that the liquid eventually would trickle down his throat, involuntarily leading Uh. him to conclude that humans had a hidden food filter in the back of their throat that triggered this automatic swallowing reflex once the food was actually prepared for digestion
0: uh, okay so this led to the tagline
1: uh chew your food until your food swallows itself All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he actually had real big results from this he lost 42 pounds and he mm-hmm. whittled his waistline down by seven inches his aches and ailments also disappeared and were replaced by a level of enthusiasm and energy he hadn't had for two decades and from then on, he spent most of his time just spreading his gustatory gospel, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it sounds
0: like basically a, a enforced portion control. If you're eating for so long, you're just not going to be able to eat as
2: much. Yeah, and yeah, that's why they, some people will say, you know, drink a glass of water before having a meal, because it mm-hmm. just signals to your stomach that, hey, I'm already full.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But still, he continued to follow his gut and diligently studied the time and effort it took various foods to liquidize, creating hundreds of menu cards with the number of chews required to fully digest each item, (laughs) like a piece of toast is 20 bites, a shallot, 722, a bowl Mm. of macerated wheat, 800, and on average, Fletcher would perform about 2,500 mastications in a meal. Wow. Precise. All right, strap in. Uh, He not only (laughs) tracked what entered his body, he also meticulously monitored what came out as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It seems seems like up his alley.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He collected and weighed each of his bowel movements, aiming for two to four ounces, and recorded their characteristics in excruciating detail, including, uh, well, he read feces like tea leaves. Convinced that health information could be gleaned from smell, size, consistency, and color, and also even sent some of his waste to federal laboratories to prove (laughs) that proper digestion produced small, salubrious stools with no more odor than a hot biscuit.
0: And again,
2: (laughs) (laughs) sorry, a hot biscuit—that that's what undid me there.
0: And again, this is sort of based in science. I mean, your stools can give you some information about illnesses or about digestive problems. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that that goes all the way to weighing them and like them to
1: strangers. Well, not
2: necessarily just strangers, but the federal government. Right, right.
1: So Fletcher, in 1900, decided he needed a change of pace, so he actually retreated to a 13th century mansion on the Grand Canal in Venice, which he christened the Palazzo Saibante, meaning Palace of Health, and met Dr. (laughs) Ernest Van Someren, who was a young English physician who agreed to test Fletcher's system on himself and others. And after a few months of munching, the doctor himself was actually hooked and ended up presenting a paper to the British Medical Association supporting Fletcher's claim. And it intrigued and baffled tons of scientists who knew little about the body's response to caloric restriction, actually. And so overnight, Fletcherism had transformed from a hoax to a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The thing is that Fletcher was really, really charming. He was described as a far cry from the stereotypical lean ascetic sitting over a plate of prunes Mm -hmm. and was actually depicted as a delightful man with the sweetest and cheeriest disposition imaginable, despite his monomania. (laughs) And so this is where we get into where this applies to modern-day nutrition. One scientist who was a skeptic but still worked with him was Russell H. Chittenden, who was a renowned biochemist and director of the Sheffield Scientific School at Yale. So over several weeks, he monitored Fletcher's food intake, which averaged 1,600 calories and 45 grams of protein a day. Mm -hmm. And despite these meager rations, Fletcher maintained his weight, displayed no ill effects, and basically breezed through four back-to-back days of strength and endurance exercises. And he was about 60 at this time which was incredible given that, his yeah. low caloric intake, and his sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. So it basically proved that humans could consume 2,500 calories and 50 grams of protein a day, which were two-thirds of the calories and one-half the protein intake recommended at the time without experiencing negative side effects.
0: Whoa, wait, they were recommending like over 3,000 calories a day for an adult?
1: Yep. Like, no Uh, wonder everybody. (laughs) Yeah. So athletes were advised to consume three portions of rare red meat per day. And in 1896, the University of California served its football players more than 200 grams of animal protein a day, which is the equivalent of around two pounds of steak or 33 eggs.
0: Yeah. I mean, to consume all that, you would have to chew very quickly. So, I mean, it makes (laughs) sense that they were like, swallow it, swallow it,
2: swallow it (laughs) as fast as you can. Yeah. I mean, athletes still have typically higher caloric intake. And sure. I know that some of mm-hmm. them are fond of drinking raw eggs. Ostensibly, you don't have to chew pretty much any. It's already ready right? to go there.
1: <laughs> yeah. That level of consumption for of protein is really just for top tier bodybuilders nowadays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this actually ended up sparking a lively debate over the optimum levels of protein in the diet, which culminated in a dramatic revision of nutritional standards and catapulted Fletcher into the limelight. And that's part of what our current day caloric intakes and protein guidelines are based on. Hmm. And... <laughs> The thing is that since he had this scientific authority, his ideas became much easier for the public to swallow, pun intended, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, his ideas were popularized by the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, Scientific America, Ladies Home Journal, and even Lancet. And compulsive chewing became fashionable, attracting a horde of high-profile hypochondriacs, including John D. Rockefeller, mm. Irving Fisher, and King Edward VII. Oh. So, yeah, it really went everywhere. And even Upton Sinclair declared Fletcher to be one of the great discoveries of his life. Even Dr. John Harvey Kellogg converted to the cause and began prescribing his patients chewing rituals alongside their yogurt enemas. (laughs) So So Fletcher became this influential voice on all these health issues, authoring best-selling books and an avalanche of magazine articles. He would make headlines and like, literally pack auditoriums anywhere he went, attracting crowds of a thousand or more. And he had this flair for self-promotion and would capture the public's attention by performing these fantastic feats of strength. Like, the newspapers brimmed with accounts of this middle-aged man racing up the 854 steps of the Washington Monument, cycling 190 miles in one day without training, and doubling college weightlifting records. Uh And on his 60th birthday, he stunned unsuspecting beachgoers by performing gymnastics in his underwear, including supporting a man on his shoulders, while yelling, It's all in the mouth, before doing a backflip Uh off the high (laughs) down.
2: He's a showman, no doubt, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. like equal parts David Blaine and Dr. Oz. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And (laughs) it went so far that the U.S. Army even tested Fletcher's program to see if it would be possible to reduce rations without impacting physical performance. But proselytizing in this way was pricey, and he was struggling to stay afloat. He claimed that he spent at least $100,000, which was the equivalent of nearly $3 million today, underwriting experiments, publishing propaganda, and commuting across the Atlantic. Oof. So by the end of the decade, he was flirting with bankruptcy, estranged from his wife, and all but alienated from the scientific community, mm-hmm. who just lost interest in his claims, including that crime would be practically eliminated if everyone <laughs> just chewed properly.
0: No one would have any time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even Kellogg got tired of his chewing crusade and abruptly cut off all ties, which Fletcher was confused by and wrote sad letters about. (laughs) And haunted by his increasing irrelevancy, Fletcher spent the last years of his life lashing out at his critics and attempting to regain the public's favor. But while his celebrity faded over time, his spirit does actually live on in the lingering belief in the curative properties of slow and mindful eating.
0: Fair you enough. know, like I said, I can get behind slow and mindful eating. I don't know if it's going to stop all crime, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know yeah. what? You just haven't gotten your defecation to the warm biscuit stage. What you true. do, What's once we all do,
1: <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, Next link.
0: Link. All right. Well, this one has no traces of biscuits in it. It's from American <laughs> Heritage. Uh, it's called "Did Hurricanes Save America." So obviously we are in the middle of hurricane season. It's not a great one. I don't know if you guys read Mm. elsewhere. They're about to run out of letters. Oh, delightful. But yeah, so this one kind of goes into like, well, maybe there have been some times when hurricanes were not so bad. And apparently a hurricane may very well be the reason that America won the American Revolution. Mm. The hurricanes in question are two from the 1780 season, which was the deadliest on record. The first hurricane hit Jamaica and then kind of headed north to Cuba. And in the strait between Jamaica and Cuba, there were seven British Royal Navy ships, including the 44 gun HMS Phoenix. Basically, almost everybody on all those ships died. But we have a little bit of records from it because a few people from the HMS Phoenix survived. One of which was First Lieutenant Benjamin Archer, who wrote this moving letter to his mother describing the horrors of going through this hurricane on the ocean, just trying to ride it out. Uh, He noted that birds fell out of the sky. And the ones that lived kind of huddled in flocks on the decks. Like, they would not leave the ship. So they had all these flocks of birds hanging out trying to protect themselves. He said the waves were as high as mountains on all sides. And eventually the ship ran aground basically high enough that they couldn't get off again. They were just up on this rock that was way away from where the normal sea level was. And between the north side of Cuba and southern Florida, it hit another fleet of British ships, damaging all of them. They weren't quite as destructive, but basically at this point, every British ship in the Caribbean was damaged or completely destroyed. And then only about a week later, a second worse hurricane hit, causing 17,000 civilian deaths in Barbados and Martinique and those kind of surrounding islands. And another 15 Royal Navy warships were lost. Dang! So the British lost a huge amount of Navy artillery and soldiers and everything right at the time when the war was maybe kind of tipping in their favor. Like at the end of the Revolutionary War, we were not looking so good. And then meanwhile, Mm -hmm. the French fleets were kind of hanging out in the same area, but they were a little farther north. They missed the hurricane. They lost about 40 transport ships and a number of soldiers, but they didn't lose any warships or guns, which is important. You may recall from history or Hamilton, the French were on our side, right? And they were fighting for Mm -hmm. us, but basically what they were really doing was fighting the British, which obviously the French and the British go way back. Right. And Up until the hurricane season of 1780, they had viewed the Caribbean as the best front. That's where they were doing all their fighting. They had kind of been invited politely to come up to the east coast of the U.S. to fight there, but they were pretty much disinterested in that. And it wasn't until the hurricane season that they said, you know what? Actually, hanging out in the Caribbean is not a great idea. We need to get out of here. They headed north to the American fronts. And this was at the point where Washington's army was down to 3,500 soldiers, many of whom had not been paid in nearly a year. The British had held New York for five years at that point, and their southern army was decimating Virginia. And this was the moment when the French intervened at Chesapeake Bay. They had 26 ships Mm -hmm. versus the British 19, which had the British not just lost 15 ships, they absolutely would have outnumbered the French. They probably would have won that battle. And the fact that the French won that battle was what led to the Battle of Yorktown, which is where America won the war. So this historian makes a really huh. compelling argument that we absolutely would not have won if these two hurricanes hadn't hit right when they did in the season of 1780. So, wow, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about the number of historical events that could turn on a dime like that through stuff completely out of our right. control. I mean, and certainly at the oh. time they didn't have the ability to say, oh, hurricane's coming. We got to get out of here. They really had no predictive abilities whatsoever, right. certainly compared to what we have today. Just divine interference. Mm-hmm. That's right. God wanted America to win. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I know uh, a few people who would very much like to internalize this story.
0: That's right. That's right.
2: <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next link is brought to us from the BBC. John Cage's musical work has changed its chord for the first time in seven years. What? Mm. So the piece is playing? (laughs) Oh, this piece has been playing. So just for a bit of context... John Cage. He's an avant garde American composer. He's most famous for a piece called 433 or 4 minutes 33 seconds. It's a three movement composition that he wrote in 1952. And it's for any combination of instruments, but it instructs the performers not to, to play them. So instead, <laughs> listeners hear the sound of the surrounding environment during the 4 minutes and 33 seconds that the work lasts. <laughs> Given the fact that that's his most famous piece. Yeah. Uh, This piece that we're talking about here, it brought a bunch of fans to a church in Germany where they have been playing this composition. And this is a musical composition that lasts for 639 years. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And it's called... As slow as possible. Yes. (laughs) Makes sense. So this is the first change in the piece for seven years. It began 19 years ago with a pause lasting almost 18 months. And (sighs) the change of chord that took place recently took place on the specialty built organ on which the composition is being performed at the St. Bucardi Church in the city of Halberstadt. And the score is made up of only eight pages of music to be played at the piano or organ very slowly. So they just have a giant noise machine
0: in this poor area where they just play constantly this one tone.
2: <laughs> well, it's not clear whether it's a sustained note or if it's just a note <laughs> like a a whole note that just exists in that ephemeral moment and then right. goes away again, but if you do want to catch the next scheduled chord change, you only have to wait until the 5th of February of 2022. Oh. And then you'll have plenty of other opportunities cuz the piece will end in 2640.
0: So it's speeding up. I mean, it's it's getting to the exciting part of the
2: piece now. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, maybe like the second in a triplet that spans, I don't know, 15 <laughs> years or something like that. <laughs> Does he think he's going to be alive all the way through this? Or are there like is there a series of custodians that have the piece that know when to change it? I'm sure it's got to be custodians. Who knows if the church has some kind of, title or deed or Mm -hmm. you know instructions left in the will that if you do play the music you know performances get interrupted there may be some kind of apocalypse that gets people off track (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I'm sure you know
1: I'm gonna choose to believe that this piece is the sole thing keeping John Cage alive right
2: right. continue to
1: so long as the piece keeps (laughs) swaying
2: well his legacy sure but he did the composer did die in 1992 at the age of 79 oh so somebody else is doing this he's not even there to see it oh correct no he he just writes the music and then anybody can do what they want like we could have our own damn interesting week podcast performance (laughs) of 433 it just doesn't make for really good podcast entertainment you know just put
0: four and a half minutes of silence at the end of it and we'll Mm. call it a day
2: (laughs) (laughs) we'll call it a performance of of artistic feat for i don't know i don't know if
0: we can afford the license fee you guys like it's (laughs) it's too expensive
2: (laughs) next link
1: Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from Newsweek.com. It is titled, I'm a Coffin Confessor. I tell people's secrets from beyond the grave.
2: Mm, All right. That (laughs) brought it back in a way that I was worried it was going somewhere else. So, okay.
1: (laughs) so this is by bill edgar and most of this is written in the first person but i have transcribed it so bill is a private investigator based out of queensland australia and his work involves going into big businesses undercover as a security guard or a cleaner for example to find out who's stealing from the business Mm -hmm. and he tends to find this out pretty quickly because he's good at his job so around three years ago one of his clients was being ripped off by someone within his business but his client was also terminally ill And they started talking about death and what's on the other side. And Bill suggested the client do his own eulogy. And the client said no and that he just wanted something more. So as a joke, Bill told the client he could crash his funeral for him. (laughs) About three or four weeks later, Bill received a message from the same client saying, I'm going to take you up on that. So the client told Bill that he wanted him to crash his funeral and that he would pay him $7,300 or $10,000 in Australian dollars to do exactly what he asked. So Bill was to interrupt the funeral when his best friend was reading the eulogy and tell his best friend to sit down and shut up. <laughs> then he was to explain to everyone that he had something to say on the behalf of the deceased. Uh-oh. Yeah. So anyone can attend a funeral. So Bill just went in as a mourner and sat amongst the family and friends. Uh, you know, he got asked if he knew the man who died. and He said yes, because of course he did. And at a certain point, he stands up and introduces himself. And then he outs the best friend for trying to sleep with the deceased's wife. He asks three mourners who are also at the funeral to stand up and make themselves known. And then he had to tell them to get lost because as far as his client had been concerned, they shouldn't have even been at the funeral. Oh, no. Wow. Yeah. So at first people were confused, didn't know what's going on. And then a few days later, Bill actually gets a beautiful email from his client's wife and one from the deceased man's daughter. And the daughter had actually been told by her dad that someone's going to do something at the funeral, but she didn't know what. mm So it was really daunting, but at the same time, Bill said it made him feel really good. His client was knocking on Death's door, and he wasn't going to have the strength to say or do these things himself, so he felt really empowered knowing that he'd be able to do that for this client. So he goes on to tell some more uh, Coffin Confessor stories. One of the most volatile funerals he attended was on behalf of a deceased client at a biker funeral. Oh. He had to expose that the deceased biker, who was a sergeant at arms and quite well known, was gay. And his lover was in the funeral party. Oh, And that yeah, that was a big confrontation because at mm-hmm. first everybody just thought that Bill had a vendetta against the man. Mm-hmm. But the people who really knew the deceased did know that he was gay. After the first funeral confession he delivered, he started getting leads from that. So someone from that first funeral got in touch with her aunt, who was in palliative care, and she then contacted Bill, and he helped her with her funeral confession. And this one was a more beautiful one because she had left messages for her husband. Bill was essentially helping this poor widower find mm-hmm. these messages mm-hmm. left behind by the deceased, which was really lovely.
0: So that was more of like a one-on-one thing. As a, like He doesn't just do big dramatic reveals. He'll also just say whatever you want him to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. He, okay. He's not there just for the drama. He's there to deliver your message, right? Whatever, but that in be. the way that you want it. So if right. you want it dramatic, you can get it dramatic. Right, right, right. <laughs> for instance, some people will ask him to do a confession on somebody else's behalf, but he makes sure to speak to them first and get the information from them. Mm. He needs to record the conversation and he needs a contract signed because he needs to protect himself. For instance, if someone wants to confess to a serious crime after they've passed, he suggests that they write it down and seal it and he'll open it after their death. Because he doesn't want to be in a position of knowing something that has to be reported to the police. Right. At
2: least have the evidence ready to go in a format that is traceable to that person. Right. right in their exactly. handwriting, whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So at this point, he's now done 22 funerals and home sweeps altogether. Huh. His fee is still $7,300 for a funeral confession. But he only charges 2200 for a home sweep. And a home sweep is if an elderly person had a fall, they go to the hospital and they think they might not get back home. They'd engage him to go back to their house and clean it of items that they don't want their family and friends to find. Anything oh. from, you know, sex toys to money or guns. He'll
0: clear your browser um, history. That's very nice.
1: Exactly. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have a best friend who's tech savvy enough to do it, then you can hire Bill. Wow. Uh, <laughs> There's also some funeral confessions or requests that he said no to. For instance, one elderly gentleman wanted him to kill his pet dog so the dog could go with him when he passed. Bill said no to that, but he did say that he'd make sure the dog found a beautiful home. Mm. And after appearing on breakfast television in the UK, he actually set up his own coffin confessions website where people could upload their own confessions, eulogies, and messages for loved ones. He got 8,000 uploads in one week and it just went from there. So, yeah, like there's clearly a need for this sort of service in a really big way.
0: How sad, though, that people don't feel like they can just say it themselves. Like, obviously, the home sweep, you can't get up and physically go hide your stuff. But it's like some of these things... I wish people could just say, you know what? I am going to say I'm gay to my friends, and it's not going to matter because I'm going to die, and who
1: cares? (sighs) Yeah. I guess there's just circumstances that you get into with Mm -hmm. the people around you where you just don't feel comfortable, but you need them to know. That's right. You
0: really want it out there. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And Bill has actually had funeral directors tell him to leave in the past. And (laughs) what he does is he tells them that this is his client, and if they don't let him do his job, he'll take his client with him. (laughs) And uh, that is exactly what it sounds like. So before they pass, he sets his clients up with a separate funeral director just in case. So if the funeral director they go with as the sort of main option doesn't accept the reveal, they're ready to literally take the coffin and bury them somewhere else if their final wishes aren't respected which is incredibly hardcore if you ask me yeah Yeah,
0: he's dedicated he provides a real service i like this guy
2: me too
1: absolutely And like, you know, he went as far as to set up the coffin confessions. He clearly has a code of ethics. Mm -hmm. Like, it's weird, but, you know, I feel comfortable with this idea, with these parameters. Yeah. He's also had a few requests from people in the U.S. One guy wanted him to put fireworks in his coffin so that they would go (laughs) off during a parade. Yeah. Another guy wanted to be naked, lying on his front with an open casket, and have kiss this written on his butt cheek. Wow. (laughs) Or when the viewing happened. (laughs) His job is a little contentious. He said that it's ridiculous the sheer number of people who say that they've been to funerals and out of respect to the living would always keep quiet. But Bill thinks that they should be getting up there and saying that the person who passed wasn't the way that they're being described Mm -hmm. or questioning why the deceased was given a religious funeral if they just weren't religious. Right. He says, you know, if you're at a funeral and you hear something that isn't right, why not stand up and say something, especially if it's your best friend or your dad in that coffin? Yeah. It ends saying that Bill's just not sure what the future holds. He's clearly going to keep doing this because there's a market for it. And he's actually getting a reputation to the point where when Bill goes to a funeral, people are going to just start leaving. Right. They and he's know. He's not going who to have is. to do so much work. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They know. And so if they've got beef with the deceased, they know to just get out.
2: Beef with the deceased sounds like such a good band name. Nice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Hell yeah. I'd go with them I'll, on tour. I'll copyright that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link.
0: link. So this one comes from The Conversation, uh, also very relevant to things that are going on right now. It's called Why Gender Reveals Have Spiraled Out of Control. Yes, Uh, please. Yes. Make it stop. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Fully aside from the fact that they're out of control to begin with, one recently started one of the major fires that is burning across California right now. It started Labor Day. It's still going. It's burned over 10,000 acres. And it started from an incendiary device shot off during a supposed gender reveal party. But just in general, like philosophically, these things are very questionable to begin with. Yeah. The article is written by Jenna Drenton, who is a sociologist and associate professor at Loyola University. And she goes a little bit into the history. You know, obviously, historically, parents have always tried to guess their gender of their children. You know, they've got all these old wives tales like, oh, if you're carrying low, it's a boy. If you're craving sweets, it's a girl. All that stuff is nonsense. They've all Mm proven it's, you know, 50-50 chance at best. It wasn't until 1958 that the first fetal ultrasound was completed by Scottish physicians. And even then for a long time, it was really only used for suspected disease or abnormality. They weren't just looking at every baby for the fun of it. It right. wasn't until the late 70s that it became widely practiced in America just for sex identification. And they still don't do that in a lot of countries of the world. It really is kind of a uniquely American thing. Mm-hmm. But we've been doing it for less than 50 years, and it's already exploded into this ridiculous quote-unquote tradition. So Drenton says it's really not about gender at all. It's just another manifestation of the attention economy. Ooh. It's Yeah. It started because in 2008... Blogger Jenna Carvinitis posted about her baby shower on her blog, High Gloss and Sauce. And remember, this is 2008. Like, there really weren't that many bloggers out there at the time. She was kind of one of the first. And she posted about her party, at which point they cut into a cake to reveal that there was pink frosting. And her post went viral, and that was sort of when the idea of revealing the gender at a baby shower became a thing in widespread use. Mm. Ironically, they note that the baby that sparked it all has now come out as somewhat gender fluid. She uses female pronouns, Mm. but she uses androgynous clothing and hairstyles. And she says, Mom, there are many genders. There's many different sexualities and all different types. And Carvinitis says, I take her lead on that. She says she generally regrets the phenomenon. But I will note, she also posted all of this on her blog and went viral again with this announcement about her child. So, you know, her motivations are still suspect. I'm not thrilled with this woman regardless. (laughs) But... uh, But yeah, Drenton coins a number of things. I I don't know if she was the first one to call it the attention economy, but she uses it liberally in this article. And she also calls this whole phenomenon of talking about your kids online as sharenting. And the (laughs) the need for these bigger or more dramatic reveals is really just the logical conclusion of an overall need to go viral. She's like, if there were other things that people could go viral with, they'd be doing that instead. But this is. Or in of-
2: addition to. Sure. I mean, like right. the whole like viral prom ask outs. I know mm-hmm. that that's been a huge thing, like, mm. especially interestingly in like Mormon communities, like huh. in Utah. Like, this whole idea of asking someone to go to a dance or just to go out or to be a girlfriend and making it this like DIY Broadway production. Right. It's, very public. It escalates. Yeah. yeah very yeah. public.
1: Thankfully, they don't usually use explosions, but Not maybe yet. I just haven't looked at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: some Aww. of these, some of these gender reveal parties they had links to examples of people who wrestled alligators people who jumped out of airplanes generally speaking they tend to reflect the parents interests much more than any potential baby's interests i mean the whole point is you don't know who this kid is and already you're using them for your own benefit it's you know kind of questionable and she goes into as always you know there's money involved as soon as this sort of caught on as a trend you started seeing gender reveal cakes confetti balloons smoke bombs Even modern days, now we see it's a girl face masks and it's a boy hand sanitizer. Um, You know, I mean, the market will adapt to whatever it is you want to feed it. But she noted that influences really are driven by what gets them the most attention. And in fact, the tide seems to be turning because one prominent social media figure, Iska Lawrence, just recently went viral by proudly and loudly declaring that she was not going to do a gender reveal. And included in her post a sponsored link to branded clothing. So, you know, it's, <laughs> the, the moral of the story is they'll do whatever they can to get the attention. It really isn't so yeah. much about the gender of the baby at all. It's just this mm-hmm. is a, an excuse to do something wild and hopefully go viral. Mm-hmm. You know, she says at the end of the day, you can't distill the problem down to the foolish choices of expectant parents. You have to focus on the cultural and the economic forces that shape these decisions of these parents and why it is that they feel like they want to go viral with any piece of information, regardless of whether it's their baby or anything else. It's easier to mock individuals for their parenting decisions rather than criticize the attention economy overall for having incentivized these ridiculous things that start wildfires and kill lots of people. But if we're lucky, it'll stop. It'll it'll swing the other way. You know, maybe is- Iska Lawrence has the right idea. Maybe we'll go back to very loudly getting attention for not doing things. I mean, that's
1: <laughs> yeah, that's my idea. That antiviral viral viral. Like, that's dollar, right. You know?
0: The the more oh, attention I can get for not doing anything, the better off I am. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. We do have some new listeners recently, so if you are not fully aware of how damn interesting week works. Damn Interesting always has been and always will be an ad-free experience. We don't like reading ads. We know you don't like to listen to them. So we're just going to save you the time, make you not have to skip it. And hopefully you'll find our podcast enjoyable and want to keep us going. If you would like to support us, you can go to patreon.com damninterestingweek There are, of course, many articles we didn't get to. Some of those articles include how not to design a space station, nanoclay, the liquid turning desert into farmland, and this cold tube sucks your body heat to keep you cool. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.